Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Hey everyone, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown, and I'm Marisa Lago. And I'm Scott Schaefer, and today on The Breakdown, we're welcoming back a Californian who spent his entire career behind the scenes of state politics, helping Democrats win big majorities in the state legislature, and helping build political power within the AAPI community. That is right, Bill Wong is here. He is author of a new book, Better to Win, Hardball Lessons in Leadership, Influence, and the Craft of Politics. And he'll, he'll join us in just a minute, but first, Scott... Let's talk fentanyl, one of the big issues percolating around the state capitol this week. A lot of pressure from Republicans and some moderate Democrats for the Democratic majority to take up this crisis. Um, Same week that Gavin Newsom parachuted in, parachuted into the tenderloin with his cabinet and uh, some other members, the AG, uh, Rob Bonta. And not the media, apparently. There was some Twitter uh, videos taken that made their way onto television. But yeah, this is, you know, this is obviously a crisis. I mean, and it's no surprise. I mean, San Francisco's had a huge fentanyl problem. Uh, But this year already, we've seen a 41% increase in the number of deaths on the street, accidental overdose, 200 just in the first three months. That's just here in San Francisco. Just in San Francisco, which is- Statewide, those numbers are way higher. And this is not a a crisis that's unique to the city, which is why you're getting pressure from folks across the political and ideological and geographic spectrum. Yeah, I mean, it shouldn't be a partisan issue. I mean, this affects everyone. It affects families. Um, And, you know, also there's there's two schools, probably more than two schools of thought around this. It's like um, Democrats tend to lean more toward harm reduction, you know, providing test strips and Narcan and things that will help you know, reverse campaign. education. You know, whereas Republicans traditionally, and we're seeing this in Sacramento as well, want to enhance penalties, want to be, you know, sort of cracking down on the dealers and the important... On the criminal justice side, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think, I mean... They're not wrong. I mean, I mean, I, I should mean, say I there's think, truth is truth on both sides. Yeah, I mean, I think there's two things. Yeah, one is just the history, and we have seen, I mean, it's not as if the war on drugs and a lot of those enhanced penalties for crack cocaine and things like that solved the crack cocaine crisis. So I do think we need to take lessons here. But politically, Democrats are just between a rock and a hard spot. There's a lot of emotion, a lot of anger, a lot of trauma, a lot of, you know, parents and families who have lost loved ones. And 
there's a desire to be seen as if you're doing something and a lot of pressure from the right. On the other hand, you know, we have seen this Democratic Party oversee a real rethinking of criminal justice, of our prison and and jail systems. Just a few weeks ago, the governor announcing he's transitioning San Quentin into more rehabilitative prison facility. Um, And so I don't think you know, the things that I think 15 years ago would have been a sort of rubber stamp for both sides of the aisle. Sure, enhanced penalties, anybody, you know, who's dealing this or whatever it is, it's not the way the party wants to go. And particularly Reggie Jones-Sawyer, the Democrat who has the Public Safety Committee, uh, he has been pushed into finally scheduling a hearing for next week. Um, But he's been on the forefront of these reform efforts. And so I think for someone like him, there's a desire to be more thoughtful. And the way it's been read by, you know, the other side is that he's just dragging his feet. Yeah. I mean, there is going to be a hearing on, I think, May 11th and up in Sacramento, I think. Well, there's two. So next week, there'll be a public safety hearing where they're going to hear some of these bills that do things, including, you know, the education and harm reduction, a a task force, um, you know, things like, uh, but there's also, you know, adding sentencing enhancements for fentanyl dealers, increasing penalties if people sell on social media. The the May 11th hearing is this, you know, special committee that Matt Haney created. And this is, I think, looking for longer term solutions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and, you know, if you look at like who's being affected by this, yes, you know, in the tenderloin where the governor was this week, you know, it's people living on the streets, a lot of them, uh, they're overdosing, they're maybe they're regular users and they're, you know, building up some kind of resistance to it. And then they finally get a fatal overdose. But then you also have, you know, young people or others uh, who are using another drug, cocaine perhaps, and suddenly they're dead because it's actually laced with fentanyl. And and so it's it's a very complicated problem. It's affecting so many different families and communities, rural as well as urban. Absolutely. Uh, and so, you know, we'll see. The, the, but, you know, as we've learned in the past, the, the quote-unquote war on drugs really did nothing to, you know, stem demand uh, and ultimately put, you know, a lot of people in prison and, you know, without a lot to show for it. Yeah, and I think that... What we will probably hear at that hearing is some pushback from Democrats that some of these measures to enhance penalties for dealers are really going after the small fish, not the folks who are bringing in this horrific substance from Mexico, China, other countries. And is that the best approach to things? Yeah, exactly. And there's got to be a federal response as well. I know the president has talked about this. Republicans talk about it. But so much of it is coming over the border from Mexico, China. So a big problem. You, on the other hand, this week uh, were down in not quite at the border, but in La Quinta in Riverside County uh, at a big national conference of political consultants. What was the buzz down there? Was there much talk about, you know, Ron DeSantis and the presidential primaries coming up? Yeah, definitely. Um, This is, you know, the National Political Consultants Conference. So a lot of folks flew in from the East Coast to get our nice California spring weather. Um, Definitely caught up with a handful of Republicans, including folks who are, you know, planning independent expenditures on behalf of Ron DeSantis or um, against folks. You know, I think one thing that, that struck me is this abortion debate and how challenging it is shaping up to be for Republicans, kind of like the dog that caught the car, right? SCOTUS issued this huge ruling overturning Roe v. Wade, and yet a lot of advocates haven't stopped there. This week, we're awaiting what will happen in this question over the pills, um, Mifepristone, uh, which the Supreme Court has said they'll rule on a Laura Court ruling by Friday. Um, and so I think that there's a real sense, you know, Ron DeSantis just signed a six-week ban in Florida. He does not seem to want to talk about it, and a lot of the GOP consultants I talked to don't want to talk about it either. And so I think that this is going to be, as we knew, but like just all of the, you know, every time another ban goes into place, another law is passed, another court ruling 
I think it's going to make 2024 even more crucial of an issue for both parties. Absolutely. And we saw, you know, just uh, one little data point in Wisconsin where the uh, pro-abortion rights uh, judge won a race for the Supreme Court by 11 points. I met the consultant who ran that race. Ah, lessons learned. Yeah. (laughs) So it's uh, it's one. Yeah. Like you say, it's one of those issues that Republicans have fought for for so long. And now that they, quote unquote, won, uh, they may, you know, they may pay pay for it at the polls. All right. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we will be joined by longtime Democratic political operative Bill Wong. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. Today, we are excited to welcome Bill Wong back to the show. He has worked for lawmakers, run political campaigns, and helped the Asian American community really find its voice and power in California. His new book is Better to Win, Hardball Lessons in Leadership, Influence, and the Craft of Politics. Bill Wong, welcome back to Political Breakdown. Thanks for having me. Yeah, good to see you. So as we said, you've been behind the scenes for a lot of your career. Why write this book now, uh, you know, after you stepped down from, I don't want to say you're fully retired, but from a lot of the, the nitty gritty of this? I think there's two reasons. One, because of what's going on in the Asian American community with regard to the rise in hate crimes and with the scapegoating, you know, surrounding the the, the China issue that's out there. Uh, the Asian American community is really struggling with their political identity. They're struggling with how do you have a voice? How do you, you know, engage in this very public process and ensure that you know your perspectives and your safety are taken care of? So, I felt that it was timely to give some type of playbook with regard to how to engage politics. Because right now, if you're not really that familiar with it, you just look on what's on Twitter and it's basically everybody's yelling at other other people or you're going to have a No, on Twitter? (laughs) Yes. So we're going to make like signs and we're going to go march on some capital and um, and it, it looks nice, but it's not very effective. Yeah. It's not effective long term. Well, and we want to talk about some of the campaigns, uh, very interesting ones you were involved in. But, the, you know, the, you begin with the story at the beginning of your book. And here's a, just a, a sentence here. This book is about learning the skills and strategies necessary to build your own power and win the fights that matter to you. Without that, what do you have? Is it sort of like more on the outside joining other coalitions where, where your own priorities aren't necessarily the focus? 
No, well, actually, my perspective on that is that what I see now is we talk about performative power, um, just having a voice somewhere, and you're not really making any changes. You're not really affecting the course of policy. You are relying on status to have a voice, but the voice doesn't necessarily produce anything. So, one of the things I wanted to talk about in the book are the techniques that you can do to influence people. Force a situation where you can have a conversation and have a, a polite battle of perspectives, and then come out with some type of outcome. Because right now, sometimes you just declare victory and then go home, and nothing has really changed. I think that as you watch policy, you kind of see that that the Democrats are yelling at one side, Republicans are yelling at the other side, and every side claims victory, but at the end, the American public doesn't feel like anything has changed. Yeah. Well, you know. We've had you on before. We talked a little about your bio, but I don't think we realize you were actually born in China. Your family, your parents moved here when you were just a little baby. They were, you know, working people. I think at times your mom was waitressing with you tied onto her back. How did that upbringing, your parents' family story, influence, you think, the way, you know, you came to these questions of power and, and building coalitions? It. It, it impacted my perspective tremendously because you feel the unfairness of life in general, and you see the haves, and then you are the have-nots, um, and you see at that I grew up in a rural area, so there was a lot of racism, and I think that that was just the way the area was. So you are, I spent a lot of time trying to reconcile my world and find where I fit in. Um, and I saw how much my parents struggled and I always wanted to figure out how you can help people like that or help ourselves with regard to not understanding how government works, not understanding how healthcare works, not understanding how pretty much anything else works. You're just going day to day. So that's what really drove me to try to understand how American society and government works. You know, sometimes uh, Asian Americans are called the model minority, you know, and there's all this pressure on kids to do well and go to Harvard or whatever. How did that manifest in your family? You, you describe yeah. in the book, you describe yourself as a mediocre mess in high school. <laughs> I, I was, and I felt the pressure to not live up to my siblings. You know, my, you know, I am clearly the dumbest one in my family. I'm the only one that only has a uh, undergraduate degree. I don't have an advanced degree. Uh, three of my siblings have uh, PhDs, so clearly not the brightest one in the family and felt the pressure of that. Um, but they're not on the radio right now. They're not on the radio, nor <laughs> nor do they want to be on the radio, I think. So, smart, uh, smart. <laughs> so yeah, there, there was a lot of that. And then as I got into more politics, I realized that in a lot of ways, being a model minority was kind of golden handcuffs. Like You would proceed in your career and do well in your career, but that pressure also constricted you from being able to say the things you needed to say in certain times that where you needed to be more vocal. Yeah. Well, before we move on to you being very vocal in Halls of Power at times, I want to ask you about a story you also tell in the book. You you talk about the power of apologies, and you say you learned this lesson in a high school locker room. Will you just tell us a little bit about that? Um, yeah, it was one of the most life-changing moments. I was on this football team. i didn't really fit in the football team. I was still trying to figure out myself, but uh, we had a really particularly bad practice that day. It was, and if you grew up, I grew up in Marysville, and some practices were done in 117 degree heat, mm -hmm. and everybody was just messing up. Nobody was doing well, and the, the coaches were very upset. The team was very frustrated, and one of the players um, made a mistake during practice, and our star running back 
lost his temper and he never loses his temper. He was the most uh, respected leader on the team and in the school and he lost his temper. It was very strange and we were all already suffering from the heat. And when we went into the locker room, he did this amazing thing. We're all putting away our stuff and getting ready to go home. And he walked up to the player that made the mistake and apologized for yelling at him. And this was the most popular guy in the school. And he was headed to Cal. He, you know, start running back. And the the person that made the mistake that he yelled at on the field was like second string player. He's in he this Al Perez didn't have to do that, but he did it. And that that had so much impact on me. It's like, wow, he you know, genuinely went up and he knew he made a mistake. He Nobody asked him to apologize and he did it on his own. And that really kind of set into my mind what a leader is on the team. Yeah. But mm. that humility is not common in politics. No. <laughs> Very not common. Yeah. Well, let's fast forward a little bit. Um, you get to Sacramento, I think in the late 80s, if I've got that right. And, you know, now if you look at statewide politics, there's quite a few well-known Asian-American API elected officials, Betty Yee, John Chung, Fiona Ma. Uh, You know, there's been a fairly long list. What was it like when you got there in terms of people who looked like you in the halls of power and at the table, you know, when those decisions were being made? It was a desert. Uh, There were maybe five or six staffers. Wow. Uh, and they weren't chiefs of staff. They were just staffers. And there were no elected officials other than March Fong Yu as Secretary of State at the time and uh, Robert Matsui in Congress. So in the legislature for 12 years, there was no API in the legislature, in the assembly or the Senate. So we really had no role model or no guide or no voice at the table. Well, one of the first big battles you took on was not one that I think a lot of people expected y'all to win. This was... Uh, under Senate pro tem David Roberti, you were an intern under two women who led a campaign to derail the appointment of Dan Lundgren to the state treasurer's office. He was a very well-known politician. The governor wanted to name him to this job. There was not a lot of AAPI power at the time. Um, how did you guys approach that? Like, was that an intimidating fight to take on? Um I was just a student in college. I had no idea. This was my first experience with politics, so I didn't know what the norm was. But I also did have that pressure of being a model minority and not being seen as that. When I was interning for Maylee, Tom, and Georgette Demur, who were the two women in uh, this story, they basically said, this is what we're going to do. There was no equivocation. There was no doubt. They knew what was right. and, and they Because they wanted an Asian American to be appointed to the seat. No, well, they just wanted to block this appointment. And we should say he opposed just, reparations for yes. Japanese right, Americans. Right, 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 yeah. right, right, so that's right, the key right. point. Yeah, he, he vocally opposed the reparations for Japanese Americans who were unfairly incarcerated during World War II. And he said some very uh, unfortunate and incorrect things during the hearings while he was in Congress. And that's what precipitated this attempt to send a message to him that that type of behavior would not be tolerated by the Asian American community. There are, I think, a lot of reasons uh, Democrats didn't like Dan Lunger, and that was certainly one of them. <laughs> yes. He was also very anti-abortion, uh, uh, and that nomination was stopped. Yeah. It was blocked. What, it. Did, what did you all learn from that? First thing I learned from that was there are the rules, and then there are the rules. Because, and I think I've passed the statute of limitations on this, what I was told was that Georgette and Maylee went to the president pro tem of the Senate, Roberti, and said, we're going to do this. And he kind of said, okay, well, if anybody asks me, 
I don't know what you guys are doing. So he gave them permission to do it, but he also mm. gave himself the, plausible deniability. Right, plausible <laughs> deniability. And then they set about doing it. And I think it would have been a different story if they lost, but because they won, it was a victory for everybody. And that mm. comes to the uh, a little bit to the title of the book that it's if you're going to pick a side, it's better to win. I mean, you say, though, that the ripple effects went far beyond this individual blocking of this appointment. How how so? Like, what did that help kind of open the door to in Sacramento? In the process of understanding how what the rules were to block Lundgren, we realized what the rules were to also appoint somebody. So later on, when uh, the Board of Equalization member, I think it was a former Senator uh, Carpenter who was on the Board of Equalization, Left uh, that left an opening for in the board of equalization, and then uh, there was an attempt to appoint Matt Fong, uh, Marsh Fong Yu's uh, son, into that position, and mainly and Georgette used those rules that we learned with regard to how to, uh, in reverse, instead of how to block one, how to actually get a approval of a nomination, and then a few years later after that. Um, Brad Sherman went to Congress, and then John Chung wanted to hold on to the Board of Equalization seat. So we were able to use that same strategy for him. And then years after that, uh, Carol Migdon went to the state Senate, and Betty Yee was in a position to be appointed to the Board of Equalization. So we used it three times in order to get a constitutional officer. Matt Fong was Republican, right? And uh, I'm wondering, how do you feel? There have been some prominent uh, Asian-American Republicans. Republicans. I'm thinking young, uh, young Kim, uh, who was in the legislature. Now she's in Congress. Michelle Steele down in Orange County is in Congress. And yet I think they're not part of the AAPI caucus, uh, which is true for the Latino caucus. It's all Democrats. What are your thoughts about that? Um, yeah, well, our, our community is much different. It's much more diverse. Uh, diverse and in some ways evenly split. Uh, the way they dealt with it in the legislature was they had a joint API caucus and then a Democratic API caucus, whereas the Latino caucus is just the Latino caucus and the Black caucus is just the Black caucus, even though there were, um, I don't know if there were any African-American Republicans, but for sure there were at least two or three. And even now, today with uh, Duarte and a couple of the other members, there are Republican Latinos that are in in the legislature. Um I think it's complicated, and I think that there are places that we could meet in the middle, and there are places where we definitely have different agendas. So I don't have a very specific perspective on it. I think that the reason why we can't solve problems is because we've drawn these lines and not been able to cross them. Uh, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. Today we're talking with longtime Democratic staffer and operative Bill Wong. So. Judy Chu uh, was a lawmaker that you helped uh, elect. Um, She ran in a district uh, that she had lost twice in, heavily Latino district. Um, And her Latino opponent had the support of the assembly speaker at the time. I want to ask you about this question of like building multiracial coalitions, but also in the context of this idea that there are Latino seats or black seats. Like, I mean, how do you kind of think about that? Because obviously, like, you can't be like, oh, there's a white seat. right? Although the default has often been white men elected to these seats. Yeah, I think um, the when we couch seats like that, a lot of times it's an excuse not to talk about building those types of coalitions. And it's shorthand for people who, and rightly so, have an agenda. Um, I've never begrudged any of the other groups for wanting to win a seat. In fact, 
if I were them, I would do the same thing. And then in the end, the voters get to decide. So I always want a Latino candidate to fight as hard as they can and the Asian candidate fight as hard as they can, African-American candidate fight as hard as they can, because that's what makes democracy work. I don't think anybody's ever entitled to a seat. Um, and I think in the long run, as districts become more diverse and change faster, it's incumbent on legislators and candidates to be able to build those coalitions if they want to be an effective legislator. And of course, the advantage of having a diverse legislature or Congress or workplace generally is not just you know, you can check the box and say, oh, yeah, we're diverse. You can have an impact on policies. What difference did it make, for example, to get a Judy Chu elected to the state assembly? It made a huge difference in a lot of nuances. For example, she made acupuncture a very important issue that she carried when she was in the legislature, which traditional Chinese medicine and alternate from mainstream medicine wasn't really that accepting of it. Um, but she also... In the book, I talk about how she represented uh, or introduced a bill to deal with car contracts that oh, yeah. uh, were negotiated in Chinese language, but then executed in English that had different terms and how a group of Chinese Americans were uh, uh, were um, ripped off by a certain dealership and how she carried a bill just for that. So it allows our community to feel like they're heard, that they have a representation, and then in a total, uh, you know, unexpected circumstance, 9-11 happened and a lot of the Sikh community and Asian American community who were Muslims felt really under attack and she was able to have hearings and give them a voice to talk about, you know, the aftermath of 9-11 and any type of scapegoating that would happen mm-hmm. after that. Well, and also I think, yeah, to your point, she always built multiracial, multiethnic coalitions. So she was there on with her ear to the ground, not just to the Chinese folks in her district, but others. Another fight that you took on that I think shows this idea of putting a specific community front and center was shark fin soup ban, right? This was a bill that ultimately was signed by Governor Jerry Brown. It was brought really by conservationists, uh, animal rights groups, um, and environmentalists. But you knew when you were approached that you agreed with this ban, but you didn't want it to be co-opted by white people, essentially. that You didn't think it would be successful if it, that happened. Yeah, you have to really cross that bridge. And I think a lot of times we would just want to be right and want people to accept that we're right. But it's also important for people to understand who you're imposing a certain perspective on that it's shared by the people within that community. And I think that that was a very important thing. There were not, there were people that were well-meaning, but they would often say that um, shark finning was barbaric. Mm. And the way it was applied really cast Chinese people in a very negative light. So my agreement to take on this contract, because I did believe in the policy, and I've had shark fin before, and I think it's important, but not that important, um, was to be able to show that Chinese Americans particularly supported the environment as much as they support shark fin soup, and they made a conscious choice that supporting the environment is more important than this cultural aspect of our living, which is nice, but also not as important as saving the environment. Hmm. As Marisa mentioned, you were successful. The bill passed. The governor signed it at the last minute. But the guy on the other side, one of them, was Willie Brown, you know, the infamous uh, Ayatollah of the Assembly, who uh, no doubt you had experiences with. What was it like being up against Willie Brown, who I guess had busloads of people from Chinatown in San Francisco sent to Sacramento to lobby? Um, Must have been pretty uh, sweet to, to beat him. 
Well, it, it was a rumor that he got brought on. I'm not sure if we ever confirmed it, but they did bring on two very high-powered lobbying firms, and we knew that there were conversations going, and obviously Willie Brown has a very long-standing relationship with the San Francisco's China, Chinatown community, so all that stuff was legitimate, and we felt that we were on the right side of history on it. Uh, we knew that the other side had a lot more money and a lot more resources, um, so it was definitely one of these kind of underdog campaigns, but we also knew that politics had changed. And if you're dealing with people who have a lot of access, just the way our environment is with regard to news and with social media, we could overcome that. Yeah. So. We're heading into another presidential election year, as we alluded to at the top. Uh, there's a new speaker supposed to be taking uh, power this summer, another Latino. I'm just curious, like when you look forward to 2024 and beyond, what opportunities do you see for Asian Americans in California specifically and nationally? We have a half Asian woman in the White House, our vice president, Kamala Harris. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think that has been as visible to a lot of people as maybe some folks would like. Yeah, it's tough because nobody, we, you know, for the vice president, she's biracial. And, but that's also an opportunity. For example, in Michelle Steele's district, which is a Democratic district that we could potentially win, we have a candidate that's half Latino, half Vietnamese. And over 51% of the voters in the district are either, when you combine Latinos and Vietnamese, that's over 51% of the district. So she has a tremendous opportunity to take that seat from Michelle Steele, who's been one of the most uh, outspoken supporters of uh, MTG and Trump and probably the Republican poster child in California for somebody that we could potentially take out. But, but identity politics is not enough, as you know. You have to be a good candidate, right? Right, exactly. And she's been on the Garden Grove City Council, and she's been able to win that seat pretty strongly. And that's the Latino base of the district. So what I think that would be an amazing opportunity for the uh, Congressional Hispanic Caucus and the Congressional Asian Caucus to get together to take this seat uh, I think that that would send a very strong message to the political world. Coalitions. Right, well, the, showing that Bill Wong's never going to really retire. <laughs> <laughs> Still thinking. Bill, thank you for coming in. You can find thank his you. book at bettertowin.com. Thank Thanks you for, so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. That is going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. And before we let you go, if you happen to be in the Bay Area next weekend, Please join Scott and I April 29th. We're going to be at KQED Fest. It's a free block party and open house right here at KQED. That's right. And we're going to have a ton of fun things happening for the whole family, including Marisa and I are going to be interviewing drag queen Sister Roma. The theme, I think, is dragged into politics. Yeah. It's going to be on stage. And we'd love to have you there. So you can get more information. Register at kqed.org. Our engineer today is Chris Beal, Guy Marzarati, and Joe Fitzgerald Rodriguez are our producers. I'm Marisa Lagos. I'm Scott Schaefer. See you next time. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night. Knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. 
Thanks.